Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 110, and my guest today is Jonathan Bessamone, founder and CEO at Fi. Did you know that 10 million dogs are lost in the U.S. every year? That's an insane number. And if you own a dog, you probably consider that dog to be a member of your family. I know I do. And like any other family member, you want to make sure your dog is given the best care, attention, and security possible. That's where Fi's smart dog collar comes into play. It's a GPS collar that tracks your dog's location 24-7, and it also tracks steps to make sure your dog is getting enough exercise. The company has raised $10 million to date, including a $7 million Series A round of funding back in March led by RRE Ventures. Jonathan is a serial entrepreneur who started his career in the technical ranks as an engineer before transitioning into product management. His first company called Pins was acquired by Square. His new company, Fi, is on a mission to keep dogs safe and healthy with a device that has many benefits and improvements as compared to other products in the market. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Jonathan's background and how he made the transition to product management, what led him to start his first company, Pins, and how he built out his network in the Bay Area, all the details behind Fi and how his dog Thor was the inspiration, how the Fi collar works plus what makes it a game changer, a deep dive into hardware development, what makes a great product manager, advice for founders looking to raise capital for a hardware company, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? There you'll find videos from our podcast, plus lots of other interviews with founders, CEOs, and investors. Plus, you'll find our very popular Inside series, which gives you an inside look at a functional area in one of the fastest growing tech companies. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Really appreciate it. Uh, so the Klein family has a little cavapoo named Stella that is incredibly near and dear to our heart. And um, you know your your website um, is it packs a punch. So the um, you know if you go to the lost dog section, it says more than ten million dogs are lost in the U.S. every year. And I saw that I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy. Uh, there, are, there are about like 100 million dogs in households in the U.S. And like the, the high level stat is one in three dogs will get missing at some point in their lifetime. So it doesn't mean they are not recovered, but at some point their owner lose them. Like they lose track of them. They don't know where they are. Wow, that is amazing. And obviously, Fi is a uh, product that not only helps you find your lost dog, but it does so much, much, much more. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you at length about the product that you've built. But let's talk about your background. So going way back, where, like where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in, uh, in Paris in France. Um, and I liked, I was a nerd. I just like cutting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did uh, my undergrad in computer science. Uh, and then uh, I did my master in computer science uh, in, in New York. Uh, and then I went back to France a little bit before coming back to the U.S., but my, my whole childhood was uh, playing with computer and playing tennis. <laughs> that was pretty so, much my life. What, what was your first computer? My first computer was uh, i386, I think, something like that. It okay. was like very old. It was a PC, like, yeah. uh, and I used to like, I used to play games on this. And then like, it was like MS-DOS. And like, I think my first OS was basically the combo MS-DOS, Windows 3.11, which was probably the like the Ferrari at the time. Like it was wow, you get a GUI. 
<laughs> yeah, that was that was the hopped up version back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so but coming out of uh, like undergrad, like what, like what were some of the you know the first school? I uh, actually got after your masters, I guess. So coming after your masters, like what were some of your first jobs? Um, that you- yeah. So during undergrad, I did a bunch of jobs on the side. Uh, I, I started by uh, doing some web admin things, and like it, the whole like 2000 period was where like web development starting to emerge. Like people were like starting to learn about HTML and CGI and like Perl and all this scripting thing happening server side. That was really interesting. That was a whole new world. Um, and my passion was about security and networking. So I did a lot of like work on uh, like low level Unix level uh, kind of developments. Um, I did, when I did my master here, I, I worked for a professor in the Student Institute Research Center and we did a bunch of uh, kernel level network uh, development around the BGP protocol. Um, so that was kind of like the area I was, I was playing with. So you're doing like, like develop, like kernel development. Yeah. Yeah. We did a, we did a bunch of that. That was like that, the specialty I, I graduated with. Yeah. That's, that's super sophisticated. Like that's not uh common just, you know, Hey, we're going to build a, you know, an application uh, using PHP or something, right? That's that's, yeah, that's a bit low, lower level, but it's yeah. fun because you really get to understand how everything works. Like, I think my approach to computer science was always like this, right? Like I started as a user and like someone put a computer in my home and I was like, I need to understand how this works, right? And then you start peeling the onion basically and then you end up like lower and lower level and then you're like okay now i'm like cutting a file system and i'm cutting like interruptions like it's really interesting to understand how memory works and like everything that is uh really lower level so that's you know i think uh that that was kind of the process by which i ended up there now you decided to go back to b school um so what why did you decide to, to pursue your uh mba at university of chicago yeah, I think, so when I did my master in computer science, I kind of like started to lean on the project management side of things. So I was like super technical and then progressively I started to feel uh, like I wanted to get pulled into other areas. So I was like, okay, now I kind of, I got a good grasp of how the technical stuff works. I don't have any personal interest in getting super deep into one of these specialty. I kind of want to touch other things. And then I realized that the process I went through in computer science like that peeling the onion thing, you can actually do it in other domains. So it's like, oh, like I want to understand business. What is business? What is finance? Oh, let me understand accounting. Let me understand marketing. Let me understand like there are all these different areas that I kind of wanted to explore. And uh, I really love the American way of teaching here, like the university experience and like the way how we could like really interact with the professors and being exposed to people who are very experienced in the workforce and like, who had been executive in very famous companies. And so I, I already had my mindset kind of like coming back and doing an MBA because I wanted to do all of this on the business side and, and have the opportunity to learn all of these things. So I went back to France. I worked for a few years uh, because I talked to a bunch of people and it was pretty clear that if you really want to leverage your MBA, you need to work a few years before to really understand, you know, what work is like. And, and and then leverage the MBA to go next level, and that's what I did, and I I loved it. Like it was fantastic. I got very lucky. I I was accepted into Chicago, and it's just a fantastic experience. I, I loved my two years there. And was product management something that you knew that you'd probably want to you know, pursue after the MBA as well? Not really. To be fair, coming from France, I didn't know what the the the, the, the title or the disciplines were. 
right? So it was like, oh, like I kind of emerged from that MBA and I'm like that like half technical brain, half business brain. And it became kind of obvious to me that the intersection of these two things was like product management. So it's like, okay, so like you can understand what the priorities of the business is and why we are building what we're trying to build strategically, like drive a roadmap based on like business incentive. And at the same time, you can re-communicate with engineers and evaluate them and like help them, you know, bridge that gap between business and, and technology. And so, yeah, I, I kind of like fell in that place kind of naturally. And eventually you ended up in, in New York. So, uh, so what was your, the startup you're working for there? Yeah. So I, I, I outside of my uh, MBA, I started working for PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, that, that just when they were restarting their strategy consulting uh, practice. And so I did a year of that, but I really wanted to get back into the startup thing. Um, so actually, I remember at the end of my one year there, I was like, okay, I need to make it happen now. And so I went on Hacker News on the job section, and <laughs> I, started, I started browsing this, right? And, uh, and there was a company who posted a CTO job uh, and out of New York, and it was super interesting, and that was Shopkeep. Um, and, uh, that was Jason Richardson, the, the founder and CEO of Shopkip, who posted something there saying, Hey, looking for CTO, we build an iPad based point of sale. Um, like that, that sounded kind of crazy. So I, I emailed him and I'm like, and I remember that email, I emailed him. I'm like, Hey, we should grab coffee. I'm not your CTO, but when you start thinking about product, people would love to be in touch. Let's meet up. Right. And we met for coffee one or two times, uh, and I, I, I loved what they were doing. It was, it was crazy at the time. Like, it's 2011, the iPad is just out, and these guys are talking about, like, I remember, like, we're in a room, and he taps on the iPad, and the cash drawer is opening, like, with that catching sound. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what is happening here? I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is the future. Uh, so soon, he basically, he was like, hey, like, I, I know I don't need product now, but I want to hire you and I want you to work with us. So I was, I was super early there. I was really the, the third guy. Um, and they third, like, third person. Wow. Yeah. They're like one person in support, one person in like two contractor doing some dev work. We didn't have the seed round raised at the time. It was just Jason putting a little bit of his own money in this. It was a very small room. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was, it was super interesting. And then progressively, um, I was able to like hire engineers and because I was technical, I was able to kind of like build a team kind of organically. And so I became kind of VP of engineering and product there. And so, uh, yeah, we ended up hiring a little bit more than a hundred people in the two years I was there. And like, I had like a team of like 25 engineers and design under me, something like that. So do you think it was that experience that really started to show you how to like lead, like how to build and lead, you know, high, high performing teams? I mean, I wish she was like <laughs> as, as successful as you describe it. It was more of a painful experience of coming to age for me. <laughs> uh, no, it's like, you know, you, I think we are all learning about startups. Like we had that goal and we had that excitement and that energy and that fire, right? But none of us had done this before and knew how to do it the right way. So it's like, it's kind of like there are some things you're doing very well and something you're completely failing at and you just learn and the key is just like learning and continuing to improve and getting feedback and, you know, like our job, I always say in startup, our job is to make it work. It doesn't matter how, like it doesn't have to be graceful. It doesn't have to be easy. It 
can be painful. Like your job is just to make it work. So well, yes. kind of like the spirit there. <laughs> well, you're, so my background is recruiting and product management and marketing were like my area of concentration. And like you, you would have been, would have been my like dream candidate, right? So you have the technical background where you're actually writing code and then you get your MBA and then you had like, you know, two years leading product at its high growth startup shopkeep where I'd be like, you know, this person can do anything. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but, but you decided to go at a different path and start your own company next. So what was pins all about? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> pins was interesting as well. So uh, it's 2013 at this point and I get my green card. And for the last two years, even though I'm doing shopkeeping, I'm very excited. I'm boiling to be able to start my own company. And so uh, I get my green card and I'm like, that's it. No, I'm, I'm allowed to be what I want to be. So uh, pins was kind of a crazy idea. It was uh, it emerged from my personal pain point, which was um, I just kept... I, in, here in New York, I had that experience where I was going to all these cool places and find all these great restaurants and coffees and things like that. And I could never rem- remember where they were. So I came up with the idea of like building that kind of like app that would um, allow you to remember the places where you have been by just pinning them, like dropping pins on the map where you like, you want to remember uh, that you have been and basically share these pins with other friends using their phone number. And so, uh, this was interesting, but it was very also ill-funded in 2013. There were a lot of like location-based customer apps that get burned very bad, and like the investors were not hot about this. But I, I really hustled it like from the beginning to the end. I raised a little bit of money from people that I've met through the shopkeep experience. Uh, Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, put some money in there. Um, yeah, your Goldfinger, who uh, is a guy who started ICQ, super successful entrepreneur. Um, I had some like cool guys put some money and helped me get this off the ground. I moved to San Francisco at the time because I was like, now that I start a company, I don't know why, but I have to be in San Francisco. So moved to the valley in Mountain View, exactly. And I take office space in San Jose. I hired two or five guys to code with me. And here we are, heads down, just putting the pins up. Um, so what's that like? So you always hear about entrepreneurs that just like, you got to go to the Valley and start a company. And I don't know if I've actually asked this question to someone that's done that. So you're just like, okay, I'm moving. I got to find an apartment. I got to find a place to work out. I've got to hire a couple of people, but how do you like, because there's so much activity and noise out there, like how do you navigate around that to start to actually build a company and start to build your own network out there? Yeah, it's a tough one because, um, I mean, to be honest, I didn't navigate that very well, I think. I think I just, like, I, I, and I, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I was just focused on building. Like, we were just very much uh, uh, heads down in the code base and just building our, our product and trying to, you know, um, deploy it. And then, I guess, honestly, you're, you start de- developing your network there when you start raising money because, like, investors talk, everybody talk there. So it's like, as soon as you pitch one person, it just gravitates or other person who could be interested and then progressively kind of, like, spreads around. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, like, and that was a super valuable experience as well, right? Like, uh, because you go through all that cycle of like, I have an idea, I want to develop a product and then you develop your product, you hit the market, you get slapped in the face and then you like go back to like, hey, I need to develop like this feature, I need to change the product this way, that way. So like we for a year-ish, a year and a half, I think we kind of like iterated and continue to try to grow our user base. 
Um, but yeah, that was that the, the process. There is no framework for this process. I'm, I've always been a believer of like, if you do something, just focus on building and on your own adventure. Like, it's not about developing your network or having the right connections. More about like, if you do something that's valuable, like people are going to come to you and you're going to develop your network this way. And where did the company end up going as far as like, like how far did you take it? And then it was acquired by Square. Yeah, we didn't do anything crazy. We had like, we had a decent user base, but it was really hard for us to go raise a more substantial like funding round. I think we raised about half a million dollars, something like that. We tried to raise a bit more, but didn't really work out, especially in the Valley, because I think the other, um, the other phenomenon that you will see in a place like Silicon Valley is that like when a trend gets hot, everybody wants in, but when a trend dies, like if, if people start saying we don't invest in that type of company, that goes very fast as well. <laughs> and so like I was completely counter time. Uh, uh, the, like the, the consumer facing app was not good. Foursquare was not doing great. Like the whole thing, the whole buzz that started with Foursquare in New York, like really died at that point of time. And it was just not a good time for, for us to raise money. Luckily for us, um, it, it just happens to be that at that time in the Valley, if you're like a team of four or five good engineers building product, people want to acquire your thing. <laughs> so it's like, uh, like this like flood of acquire between Yahoo, Square, Google, Facebook, and others. And so we're just part of this. Like as soon as we started to understand that game a little bit, we're like, wait, we can tell them that they can acquire us. <laughs> like, <laughs> so we kind of played that a little bit and we did, we did a decent deal. Oh, but awesome. we got very lucky. Yeah. And then what did you actually work on at, at Square? Yeah, Square was really like a, a huge experience for me, really interesting. Uh, Jack and Gokul have been like amazing to me and like gave me a lot of responsibility when I got there. So I was working on the new, um, like the first thing I was working on was deploying the, the Square register in Australia. Because at the time, um, EMV, so the chip cards were coming into the U.S., and so we wanted to do a pilot in Australia because we were trying to convince the banking system that we could do PIN system on the consumer, like the, the code, the PIN code that a consumer would enter, that we're developing a system. That was the first system where the PIN code was entered on the phone of the consumer. So if you think about it, every single other terminal where you enter a PIN code is like a, a merchant-owned device. And that's a whole different set of liability for the banking industry that's allowing you to accept a PIN code on your phone because you can do whatever you want to your phone and like start stealing the PIN code of, of uh, your customers. Um, and so Square that huge effort into basically uh, uh, pitching the whole banking system uh, into allowing this use case to emerge. And that was super interesting. So we deployed that in Australia. Then we deployed the chip reader in Australia then we deployed something called Register Word, which was basically deploying the whole register uh, application of Square in like 173 countries. Uh, so we deployed that all around the world. That was really amazing. Um, and then I was put in charge of uh, the, the new Square Register, the black one that you can see. Um, I think it launched last year or something like that. It's a two-screens uh, two register with a consumer-facing screen, the one when you insert the card. Um, and that was like that was a full end-to-end -end hardware type of project, so that was really cool as well because we we're building our own tablets, so like it wasn't like an iPad sliding into a dock anymore or something like that. It was like a Square building 
hardware from end to end and running this, the software on it. Well, obviously that experience uh, translated well to what you're doing now uh, because now there's, um, it's not an easy problem to solve because you have software and hardware. Uh, so what led you down the path of, of starting, starting Pi? And, um, you know, like what was the initial idea and concept? Yeah, so I started Fi a little bit more than two years and a half ago at this point. And that's exactly when I got my dog, though. So I was kind of like first square IPO. I was back in New York. Uh, I really was itching to do something again. Uh, with all the learnings, I felt like from like the shopkeep experience, the pins experience, the square experience, I was like, ah, I would be such a better entrepreneur now. <laughs> uh, so I was really itching to get back to it. And um, I think... One of the one of the things that uh, every founder struggles with, like we, we have like like an idea a day, and it's like how do we filter a good idea for a project or uh, you know something that could be fun from something we want to spend the next few years of our lives working on, you know? Um, and so for me, the 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 trigger was really when I get my dog Thor. Right, so I get I get my dog Thor. He was three months old. He was this size. What kind of dog? Like, yeah, what kind of dog is Thor? <laughs> yeah, he's a German Shepherd. Ah, okay, uh, that's a good name for a German Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, he's he's awesome. He's everywhere on our website. Uh, you can uh, you can see him there. Uh, but now he's a big guy. But at the time he was three months, and it was pretty busy. I had a, a dog walker take care of him, and and the dog walker kind of lied to me about taking the dog out at some point. I. That hap- apparently that happens a lot like uh, you know they would just like stay at home play with the dog instead of walking them outside or you know you pay them to walk the dog for an hour and they just walk the dog 15 minutes um, and then at some point uh, I realized that so I was like okay I just want to put a GPS on the dog to see what's happening to him and I, I kind of bought everything that had been built in that market and nothing was really working either the battery life was a catastrophe I had to recharge it every day or every two days or the signal was very bad. So it's like usually in the, when you look at hardware products in general, like um, you either have very good hardware team who do good hardware, but don't really know how to do software, or you have very good software team who just do OEM hardware and don't really own the whole kind of experience. And so having been at Square before, I really knew the force of like being able to understand like the hardware piece and design it from end to end and integrate the software experience into it. Um, and I think that's where also I connected with my co-founder, Lauren. Lauren was at Dropcam before and then at Nest. So we both had this experience of like, hey, that can really work if someone were to come in that space and integrate that whole hardware into the, the software piece. And uh, we didn't really see that in the market. The other thing is that I was absolutely crazy about my dog. And I was like, there have to be, like, uh, it was pretty obvious that... Uh, there was a huge generational kind of demographic trend of Gen X slash millennial coming to edge of pet ownership before having kids. And we were just building very, very strong relationship with their dogs. And uh, I was convinced that it would like substantially change the, the pet industry in general and the way human interact with dogs in general. And um, fast forward two years later, it's more and more obvious that this is happening. So I'm very excited to be in this space now. What is interesting to see how the dog is such an integral part of the, the, the family, right? It's, it's an actual true family member. Like Stella is part of our family and you think you make decisions that are based on, you know, the dog, you know, that, you know, uh, I, I'm assuming some 
cat owners are the same, but uh, I don't know if, you know, every cat owner has that same feeling, you know, if they have a cat that's just kind of like, just is there. But anyways, it just seems like the, the human dog relationship is a lot more intense than uh, other, other animals. There's definitely something happening there. Like there is, um, I think there is a stat that climbed by 10% or something like that over the past 10 years, I would say, um, which is that uh, owners characterize a dog as a full member of the family up to like 95 or 97%, which is really high. It used to be in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really like shows how this relationship is shifting. And one of the key factors of this is because we have, we get married and we have kids later in our life cycle. And so we, we end up having dogs before having kids, mm. which is completely inverted than what was happening for our parents. And yeah. so that really fuels into that strong relationship with the dog because Thor is my first kid, that's for sure. So uh, you, you mentioned Lauren, your co-founder. So Lauren was uh, the first employee of, of Dropcam that was acquired by, uh, was it Nest first, then Google, or was it? They, they were acquired by Google, by Google when, oh, okay. after, after Nest got acquired by Google. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so, yeah. so uh, how did you meet Lauren, who just, I mean, has an amazing background, especially coupled with what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, Lauren is an amazing guy. Uh, I get very lucky again. Uh, so when I started Fire, I raised a little bit of money from angels and like a microphone called Bolt. And Bolt is a microphone that invests in mostly in the hardware companies. Um, and uh, uh, Axel Bichar, my partner at Bolt, very experienced guy, very very good. I like Axel a lot. Uh, he, he comes to me and he's like, hey, listen, I know you're going to look for a VP of hardware, but um, we get this guy called Lauren. He's pretty amazing. Uh, and I think you guys would do an amazing team. Why don't you talk to him and see how you feel about him? But he's not going to come VP of hardware. Like you, you need to bring him as a co-founder. And I'm like, listen, like if the guy is exceptional, why not? You know, but he has to be exceptional. Well, I met Lauren and he's exceptional. <laughs> so yeah, like, I mean, Lauren is just that combination of amazing, um, uh, uh, technology knowledge, uh, and expertise, um, kind of like architecture and system thinking. And at the same time, he's kind of like the best human being you have ever met. So, uh, uh, when I met him, I was like, I need to make this happen. <laughs> so you're, so you have a, a dog collar that's GPS enabled. Um, you know, it's not the first idea of this concept. Um, so why is your product different and better versus the other incumbents in the system? I mean, there's Garmin that has one, there's, you know, whistle, there's link, there's all these other, uh, dog collars that are out there that there's reviews. And so, so why is Fi different? Yeah, yeah. I think the main thing is that we, we think one of the main uh, impediments to mass adoption of these products are uh, battery life. And so one of our first goal with uh, the, the building of this, pro uh, of this product was how can we achieve incredible battery life, at least something that you don't have to recharge every day or two, right? All of the products you mentioned require at best like two or three days recharge. Uh, and we don't think it's a use case where the user is like, you know, the dog owner is going to come to his dog and something from their collar, put it on the charging base and put it back on them and do that every two or three days for the rest of their life. Um, so just when we were starting to work on, on this, we realized that there were a bunch of different um, technologies that were emerging that were really interesting when it comes to saving battery. The first thing was, in general, battery density just gets better and better over time. 
So we had like more dense battery, even like smaller package, we could pack more energy. That was number one. Number two were uh, GPS chips and modules that could function in lower power modes. So like now you have like GPS modules that you can put to sleep basically, and that don't burn uh, uh, all that energy all the time. And then the last thing was really the cellular network. So one of the main problem of every tracker out there <laughs> is that they have to behave like cell phones basically. And uh, 3G, 4G, LTE networks are really not designed for this type of use case because uh, they are designed for your phone to be always reachable and to be able to stream YouTube video very close to a cell tower. That's kind of like the predicate behind these protocols, right? And so bigger screen, bigger data, uh, and, and, and faster uh, bandwidth. That's basically the idea behind all of these networks. Uh, when you talk about asset tracking in general, whether it's objects or dogs or anything, uh, and that's true for smart meters. That's true for kind of all the IoT category. What you want is something that can send a small amount of data very sporadic uh, period of time. So uh, you want something that you can put to sleep and go and, and like basically don't burn any battery and then like wake up when you decide to send some data and then go back to sleep. Mm. And so that's just not doable with the standard networks. So. Uh, um, the, the, the networks in general are aware of this, and the, uh, uh, they came up with a, a bunch of different protocols that they were experimenting for a while. And exactly two years ago, they decided to pull the trigger on something called LTCATM1, which is basically uh, a, a narrowband, low-power version of the LT protocol that allows you to have additional operations to actively manage your connectivity to the, to the cell tower. So... That means, in short, that the file caller can decide when to be on the network or not. And when it comes back on the network, it actually burns very little battery. And that allowed us to build something at this point that lasts up to three months. Um, and that's just a, a, a game changer in the category. But how did you figure that out? Like, you know, there's always that statement that I probably say too often on this podcast is hardware is hard. So you have to build this, keeping in mind that this is a dog collar. So, you know, you got to keep in mind size of dogs that, um, you know, it's got to be something that doesn't look like it's too bulky and like large. It's got to, uh, you know, it's got to be waterproof or water resistant or what, like, like there's all these specs that have to go into this. And then you have to have it manufactured. So how did you get down that path? Like, was it just a continuous iteration after iteration to the point where you're like, okay, we got it. Yeah. I think it's like, um, it's a mix of both, you know, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> on one side, it's about setting the bar high during development, because I think especially in the hardware development, it's very tempting because it's so hard and so risky. Um, every piece can like become a big problem if not designed properly. You know, uh, there is a tendency to lower the bar, out of safety on a regular basis. And then you end up with a product that doesn't look good, that doesn't feel good, you know? So I think um, my role during the development process was keeping the bar high enough so that I was challenging my engineers of like, no, let's shave two millimeters. Like, how can we shave another millimeter, right? Like, so that when you end that process and they're like, hey, I need an extra two millimeters to do this and to make sure this is clean, I'll be like, okay, no problem, you know, because I know we shaved seven before that. Uh, but I think like there is a there is a tendency to diverge progressively on your own map. You start with that idea of something that is going to be beautiful and finish and all of that, and progressively you get convinced that you need to lower that bay th that that bar, and then um, you end up with something that's not exciting, you know. <clears throat> so I think it was a mix of that and 
being able to also reduce the scope of what you need to achieve so that it's actually doable. When we started this, there is a lot of like, the, the, I, I think there is a, a 10x difference on like finding extremely talented people to work on your product. You know, like um, I, I remember talking to people who were good, you know, uh, two years ago were telling me, hey, there is no way you're making this smaller than that, right? And then I hired Bob, Bob Blake here to run our engineering uh, or hardware engineering. And like two weeks later, he made it half the size, right? <laughs> and so it's just like, you have like in that space, you have people who are just incredibly talented at making very hard things happen. Um, and so, you know, you, you just need to find these people and continue working with them and, and uh, be objective about whether your, vi your vision is realistic or not. And, and if it is, then you should work really hard toward that vision and not compromise them. Now, how about the manufacturing piece? Did the experience you had at Square and then uh, Lauren's experience at Dropcam, would that kind of like you guys were already, you know, steps ahead of other entrepreneurs that are maybe just building hardware for the first time? Yeah, I think manufacturing is is tough part because you really need to find the right partners and you really need to like build personal relationships, especially in China, uh, to uh, to have this executed properly. I think uh, from Square and from Lauren's experience, we knew it was... Uh, we knew it was a hot area, right? So like we didn't, I think the advantage we, we had versus uh, a new entrepreneur in, in the category would be that we knew this was a high risk area. So we put a lot of attention into it very early. Um, we started selecting potential partners in China very early. We visited the factories. We started interacting with the people there and really understand because in the end, it's really about the team working for you. Um, and that really paid off. Like we've been able you know, the, the, the overlap between design and manufacturing is very big, right? You get that whole period of what we call DFM, which is designed for manufacturing, where you go from your lab and your prototype to something that's manufacturable at scale, basically. Um, and that involves a lot of redesign of your product, of how all the parts are made so that they can fit in the supply chain, basically. Um, and... During that whole period, like the partner we had really was amazing working with us. They were very efficient. We were iterating every day with them. We moved very fast. And that really resulted in our product being in market really fast. End to end, we had maybe two years of development, which is really short for a full hardware product, starting from industrial design to shipping mass product. Um, and the, 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 the product is working really well in the field. So we're, um, we've been very lucky to find the right partner there. And what are the other key features to uh, to your product? Yeah, so the, the it's a fully integrated color. Um, you can customize the look by switching the band, a little bit like the Apple Watch. You can just detach the band, buy different colors, and switch them. Uh, the module by itself does uh, location tracking and activity tracking. Uh, so it tracks every single step that your dog is taking during the day, allows you to compare these steps over time, and also compare that to other dogs on the network. So you can say, hey, I have a German Shepherd. I want to see how his activity looks compared to other German Shepherds and actually see how that, that fits together. Um, the location piece has different components. The first thing it does, it tracks you or your dog walker anytime you're with a dog. So it will show you actually the path that was taken. That's coming back to my personal experience with a dog walker. <laughs> I want to know exactly where they went and for how long. Um, and it also allows you to create geofences where you consider the dog safe. And if the dog gets out of that geofence without you, 
So like it can be, for example, a geofence around your house and your backyard. If the dog gets out of there, you, you receive a text message and a push notification right away saying, hey, Thor is outside of the, the backyard. Um, and then you can switch that the, the, the GPS uh, on. And there is also a light on the tracker that makes the dog visible in case the dog escapes at night. Um, and there is a whole, of course, dog recovery phase, right? So, like, he will show you where the dog is all the time. And so if you lose your dog, he escapes, and you come back home, and you need to find him, you'll be able to pull the app and navigate to your dog. Uh, we also offer 24-7 uh, fun support for these scenarios. We'll be behind our computers, uh, analyzing every single um, signal we can receive from the caller and, and helping you recover the dog, which is pretty awesome. So you recently announced uh, 7 million Series A. Um, so what, what are your plans as far as, you know, growth, you know, team? And then how are you going to go about, you know, this is a consumer product. How are you going to go about customer acquisition? Yeah. Um, so the 7 million is really to like market the product and bring it to market. Um, and, and I think, or so we raised two and a half before that. Uh, and the goal of that money was like get to market, have the product ready to go, product development finished, ready to push the to push the button. The seven million is really to get to market and start learning about customer acquisition, market it, and uh, and start growing the business. Um, <clears throat> so the second part of your question was how do we go about this? We just um, we have a bunch of assumptions and theories around how to acquire these customers, and we just test them very uh, iteratively. Um, and so far, it's been working great. We're very excited. Uh, we already knew there were there, there was some kind of demand in the market because we were seeing all these people who bought the previous products, like the previous generation of products, like the tracker that you mentioned earlier, and we were like we returning them, not being happy about them. So like we knew that coming to them with all of this problem fixed, we would get good reception. But it has been much more than what we expected. So it's. It's pretty rewarding to see something growing organically pretty fast like this. It's nice. That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so your uh, background as a product manager, um, what advice would you give to others that are looking to get into the field of product management? And what, what do you think makes a great product manager? Hmm. Interesting. I think you need to be passionate about building products. You know, it's really about like ha having a vision for something you want to build and, uh, and then you learn the rest on the job, you know, uh, working with designers, working with engineers, um, structuring the work the right way so that you, you realize that kind of, uh, in the end, I think a good product, uh, product manager, um, sets a vision, um, communicates it clearly to the rest of the team and then kind of just remove the chairs from the, from the path of the guys running, right? It's like, for me, it's like, uh, I'm going to remove any problem in front of my engineer so that they can just go straight line and, and be easy. And like, if there's any design, I make sure that the design is ready when they need it. If like, if there is something not clear about the product, I make sure we have that conversation before that becomes blocking. So it's kind of like making the life of the guys who are building the whole thing easy and uh, making sure you communicate very clearly with them and, and have their buy-in on what you're building. Like you want to make sure everybody's exciting, excited about what you're building and, and that it's communicated through the team and, and that everybody's kind of like pointing in the right direction. What about raising capital? Um, you, know, you know, investors often say, you know, it's all about the team, which when they looked at your background and Lauren's background, it's like, okay, these are two founders that have worked in hardware, software, they've had pedigree uh, success. 
So, um, you know, raising capital uh, might be a different scenario versus somebody who has never started a company before, or never mind a hardware company. So what, what advice would you give to other founders that are trying to raise capital for a hardware company? Uh, for hardware company, um, I think I think it's about getting progressively about it, right? Like we didn't show up with Lauren, like even though our profile was like good for technical founders, like we didn't show up and get 10 million drop on our laps, right? Like it's like you, you go out there, you get the first half million dollar from angel and early investors, right? And then you show people what you can do with half a million dollar, right? And so uh, with, what we did is that with that first half million, we did all the initial de- design. We had a model ready. We had all of our market validation ready as much as you can do pre-product, right? So like you go out there, you actually gather some data and then you target your investor, right? And you try to see someone who's like already aware that of the dynamic that, that are happening in your market so that you don't have to make the pitch that the market is big enough and things like that, right? They are convinced of this piece and they just have to believe that you can execute and that there is demand for what you're building. Uh-huh. Right. So like that's the second piece. And then with the next round of money, you prove that you can build, you know, half of the product or something like that. Uh, I, I think it's all about building credibility over time. Uh, 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 some shift, I think, that happened in the past few years is that like it's uh, there have been some hardware companies in the past able to raise like twenty five million dollars on the concept, you know, and I, I don't think that's happening anymore. You know, like there it's too much capital put at risk. Uh, I think the right way to go about this is to go uh, slice by slice and just being able to deliver real results on each of the, the, the round that you're raising. Your head's down building a company, uh, but when you do have some time outside of uh, picking your head up, uh, like what, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Well, listen, I love learning more about dogs. So I do a lot of training and activities with Thor, I have to say. Uh, and I, I, I love to learn about, I think there is so much in the dog to human relationship that like we really didn't explore yet. Like uh, this, these guys have been living by our side for hundreds of years. And if you think really about a relationship to them, like most of the dog owners have like a very hard time just having a basic conversation with their dog. It's like, I really would like you to sit and stay there for half an hour. <laughs> like this is a challenging you know, prospect. So um, I think there, is, there, there are amazing things to be done. There is some research emerging in that space that is fascinating about the, the incredible cognitive abilities of, of these animals. And I think by leveraging that, we can create a, an amazing you know, step function improvement in the relationship between, uh, between human and dogs. Now our dog, I keep referring to Stella, but like, uh, like she really, really is a smart dog. Like the way she communicates with us, it's, it's fascinating. I know. It's amazing, right? It totally is. Well, so if someone wants to buy Fi, like where do they go to purchase it? They go online. They go on our website on tryfi.com, T-R-Y-F-I.com. And then, uh, yeah, it should be pretty straightforward from there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all your background, Jonathan, and all the great things that you've accomplished throughout your career. And of course, all about Fi, which, you know, it's uh, of all those millions of dogs that get lost every year. This is a great product to hopefully uh, eliminate that. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kate. It was a pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, 
Don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.